Hello friends, welcome back to the Earthly Delights. This week we have Dr. Kailas Roberts, who is a psychiatrist with over 10 years experience in the field of old age psychiatry. His recent book, Mind Your Brain, takes a deep look at what we know concerning dementia. We invited him to cover to cover some of the crucial points he makes in this piece of work. For instance, did you know that there are over 200 types of dementia? I guarantee you after listening to this for five minutes, you'll feel considerably more informed in this area. We begin with the definition of dementia, which many people get wrong and then go on to debunk several other common misconceptions surrounding this condition. Dr. Roberts stresses the importance of exercise to brain health, minimizing alcohol and sugar consumption in order to prevent or, or delay the onset of this debilitating condition. We also talk about the impact dementia can have on, on loved ones and carers who have people with dementia in their lives. I think we all know someone who has dementia or someone impacted by it. So I would strongly recommend this conversation to learn more about how we can reduce the possibility of dementia for ourselves and our loved ones. This chat may also alter your approach towards those who may be struggling with dementia or living with someone with dementia. Dr. Roberts is doing fantastic work and it was an honor to get him onto the Earthly Delights podcast. His book is available online and at selected bookstores. Thanks for listening, guys. All the best. Dr. Kyle S. Roberts, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a million for doing this. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on. Oh, no, I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, first and foremost, what's the crack? How are you keeping? Yeah, pretty good. Thanks. Yeah, I, I feel quite um, privileged to be able to be in, I guess, Australia and Queensland, which is relatively COVID free at the moment. So I think, you know, other parts mm. of the world are, are struggling, but I'm going well here. Thank you. Yeah. Great to hear. Great to hear. Um, I will, we, we'd love to ask initially, I guess, uh, how did, how did they come into the area that they, they're now an expert in or, or researching in? Um, I'm interested to know how you came across dementia, um, and for listeners, a bit about yourself, your, your interest. Sure. Yeah. So, so I'm English, um, came to Australia in 2000, but before that sort of lived in Southwest of England and then Northeast of Scotland and then. Uh, back sort of halfway between the two, went to Leicester University and did medicine there and, um, you know, finished doing sort of medicine and had to decide which subspecialty to go into. So I did a bit of emergency medicine, a bit of intensive care. Um, and then I did some sort of junior housework in Manchester, actually Bolton. Um, and then we were okay. recruited by a, a local agency, sort of approached a whole bunch of us English doctors with these PowerPoint, PowerPoint slides with pictures of nice beaches in Queensland and managed to kind of convince us to go over to Australia. And uh, it just happened that um, I met my wife, uh, now wife, who's Australian as well, over in England. So there was kind of double reason for me to, to come to Australia. And I've kind of been here most of the time ever since then. Uh, so that's kind of okay. my background, I guess. Uh, the dementia thing, well, so you can come across dementia as a sort of subspecialty by a few different groups, but mine was through doing psychiatry, so general adult psychiatry, sort of dealing with depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, and so on. Um, and then I subspecialised in psychiatry of old age, which is you know, the nominal cutoff is 65 and above. And as part of that, sort of dealing with more uh, people that are a little bit older, you look at their cognition, their thinking, and so on. And so that's sort of how I guess I came into dementia uh, work. Okay. You often neurologists uh, and geriatricians also sort of deal with dementia. So there's three different specialties, but mine's through that kind of 
psychiatry route, I suppose. Yeah. Okay. And had you, was there someone in your life, in your family or your, your small circle that had dementia? Was there any sort of personal affiliation before you? Yeah, not, not a huge amount. My uh, father's mother did end up having vascular dementia, but um, I didn't know her too well, I have to say. Um, okay. But um, for me, I think it was more just being really interested in how uh, the mind works and how memory works. And I, I always remember being interested in kind of uh, how to optimise brain function and so on. And like even as a teenager, I remember reading these books by a guy called Tony Bazan who did like mind mapping and these kind of memory matrices and things like that. So I've always been kind of interested in, in that side of things. And I think okay. when I was just dealing with the elderly and we were doing a lot of cognitive function testing, I was just, yeah, I just found it really, really interesting, I suppose. Yeah. Okay. Um, before we go any further, just for listeners who think, oh, yeah, I know what dementia is, so we can we can move on. James, there's no need for this question. Um can you give us a definition of dementia? Because I think a lot of people have come across it in, in some capacity, but just for clarification. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually think it's quite an important point to clarify because there is a lot of sort of misunderstanding and, and most of your listeners have probably heard of Alzheimer's disease and they think that Alzheimer's disease and dementia are exactly the same thing. With They're, they're actually not yeah. Yeah. quite like that. So dementia is, is really what we refer to as an umbrella term which means that there can be a number of different causes of dementia, which we can talk about. But uh, dementia sure. itself, the word really just refers to a situation where you have a number of cognitive symptoms, so sort of thinking skill uh, problems um, as a consequence of some brain disease that tend to get progressive, uh, progressively worse, or they get worse over time, and which they have to be severe enough to mean that you can't function well day to day. So really, progressive cognitive problems that impair day-to-day function. That's really, I guess, uh, what we talk about when we're thinking about dementia. Okay. And there are plenty of, like, subsections of dementia. Yeah. So there are actually probably one, two hundred different types of dementia that we know of. Um, Most of them are quite rare. Uh, There are maybe about half a dozen big ones, I suppose. So the the most well-known one, as we talked about, is, is Alzheimer's disease. And Alzheimer's disease accounts for probably about two-thirds of uh, the later onset dementia, that dementia occurring after the age of 65. So that's the most common. And then you have something called vascular dementia. And vascular really just refers to your heart and your blood supply and so on. So if you've had strokes or, you know, had problems with with your blood supply, that can kind of cause dementia in extremis. Then we have something called... um, frontotemporal dementia, which is quite different again. Uh, so that's a, a dementia that affects the front part of the brain, frontal lobe, and then the temporal lobe. Uh, and then we have something called Lewy body dementia. And then there are dementia related to Parkinson's disease, which is similar. And then also alcohol-related dementia, which we can talk about a bit more later on as well. Yeah. So there's, there's kind of about five or six types of dementia that account for the vast majority of them. And they, I think one of the really... Uh, interesting things to talk about actually is how the symptoms are different in those kind of types of dementia because everybody assumes that to have dementia you must have must have memory loss you know that has to be a symptom but actually that's that's not the case at all depending on what kind of dementia you have depending on what where the disease in the brain is you might get other symptoms so your memory may be pretty good 
but you may have other symptoms instead, and that can still be dementia. Oh, okay. Already, this already this is very helpful for me. Um, you're you're debunking a lot of things that I thought I knew. This is this is great. Before we get into kind of what potentially causes uh, dementia, what you've come across in your research. I also like to ask if there are any more misconceptions about dementia that you would kind of like to debunk or um, yeah. clarify, because, uh, like you said, dementia people is—it's actually there. There are two hundred types of dementia, and there are different types, and it affects different types of the brains and different types, uh, different areas of the brain. Um, I was wondering, just just before we move on, is there any other kind of misconception that you would like to say? No, no, it's that's not the case. Yeah. So, well, I think the, the first one is that dementia is inevitable. Uh, so, I think okay. there's an assumption that uh, you know, if we get old enough, we're all going to get dementia, and age yeah. is certainly a risk factor. But I think it isn't isn't inevitable, and there are actually quite a lot of things, and we can talk about this that you can do to prevent uh, dementia occurring or at least delay it, you know, push it back by 10 years, which is a really yeah, yeah. worthy goal as well. So I guess that's one thing that's, that's worth kind of thinking about. The second thing is that when people think about dementia, they think, well, there's nothing you can really do about it. You know, so there's no point really even getting diagnosed because once you have it, that's it. And I think that's a, that's a kind of worrying misconception as well, because it, and it means that people do become very delayed in their diagnosis. And we know that things that help often are better off being put in place early on uh, rather mm-hmm. than later. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so those two things are the inevitability and, and the kind of sense of futility around dementia once you have the diagnosis. Those two things are need to be kind of addressed, I think. Great. Because I, I wonder, uh, throughout your career, have you come across people who maybe are showing early signs of dementia, but kind of through a fear of not wanting to acknowledge it and thinking that if it's official that they have dementia, that there's nothing they could do, so they, they don't go to the doctor for official diagnosis. Absolutely. So that whole sort of process yeah. of denial and, and not wanting to kind of face things is, is, a, is a huge problem. And, um, you know, I would say it's unusual for me to catch people really early and unless uh, they're wife or husband or kids are sort of really cottoning on to things. And it's much more likely that I'll um, see people, you know, 18 months, two years after they've started to kind of have symptoms. And it's kind of taken that long for them to feel ready to come and see somebody. Um, I guess at the most extreme end, you know, I've, I've seen people that maybe have had problems for eight, nine, 10 years, you know, and they really just haven't sought treatment. And by the time they reach me, you know, they're, they're disease process is quite advanced and things so so yeah it's probably more the norm than not to see people uh, in a delayed fashion because mm. this was one point that i that i appreciated in your article in the guardian but we we really can if we're willing to accept that maybe we have dementia or our loved one has dementia that it's not like we really can make certain changes is particularly in this early period, like you said, the first 12, 18, 24 months, compared to like eight, nine, 10 years down the line, there's, there's, there's not so much you can do in respect. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that's helpful to know, there's probably a few things. So first of all, we do have some medications, which although they don't cure dementia, uh, they can make a, an appreciable difference to day-to-day function and they can improve memory and so on. So those okay. medications that we have at our disposal are definitely better off being put into place earlier rather than later. Even further down the track, though, when the d- 
disease becomes more advanced, I think there are other things that can be done. And, and another thing about dementia is it's not just about cognition and thinking. And a lot of the symptoms that people often do get, which are even more troublesome than the thinking skills, are things like changes in behaviour, uh, changes in mood, changes in, in anxiety and so on. So even if you can't do much in terms of preserving cognition and memory and so on, you can do an awful lot often to kind of make their quality of life a lot better, you know, improve the mood, settle the anxiety and so on. So sometimes yes. it's kind of a matter of just trying to reframe your goals a little bit. So accepting certain yes. things are inevitable, but then just trying to focus on the things that you can do. Okay. I, I wanted to ask, actually, have, have you seen the movie The Father that has been out recently? Yes. Yeah, it's a wonderful film. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's p powerful. Yeah, and it's quite, um, it's quite confronting, isn't it, really? I mean, yeah. and I think that's, that's a classic example with Anthony Hopkins of him going through all of those sort of uh, psychological changes and changes in behaviour and personality yeah. and so on and how troublesome that can be for other people around him and how reality becomes very distorted and things. So, uh, totally. yeah, it's a great film. Because just it, like it's linking in my head now where you were talking about behavioral change. And that's one thing that struck me in the movie that I wasn't so familiar with before. I, I often assumed that it was you forget things, you forget names, you forget memories. But it really seemed that his daughter was struggling with almost like this person being in a completely different uh, manner, a, a way of approaching people, a way of reacting to things. Yeah. And... I, I, I read a I read an article very recently, and the and the woman a woman whose husband uh, had dementia, she said she said that she mourned his death twice in the sense that she mourned it when she was experiencing this totally different person, the person that she fell in love with, it was was almost no longer there, and then when he eventually passed, like he left his body. Um, I'm interested. So this medication that you speak of, and also the lifestyle changes. There is research to suggest that the, these mood changes, this maybe like um, inclination towards anger, this can be uh, improved. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So um, some of the medications that we would use for similar problems, I guess, in younger people, whether it's depression or anxiety, they, they we do use them in, in uh, the same symptoms in somebody that has dementia. Um, I should probably say that as a general rule, they're probably not quite as effective as they, as they are in younger people. And that's probably just because you need to have, uh, I guess, intact brain matter and uh, to a degree, uh, the, the neurotransmitter system needs to be reasonably uh, working well in the first place for the drugs to work optimally. Um, but certainly we do use those kind of medications um, sometimes, excuse me. Um, we do okay. use those medications often and I think they can make a real a real difference and even the medications that we use to help with memory and so on uh, they can help with those behavioral and psychological changes as, as well and um, actually a large part of, of my day-to-day -day work is dealing with exactly these problems and, and trying to work out what we can do and that's actually in, in recognition of the fact that these problems are actually more of an issue for a carer for instance you know whether it be a hospital yeah. wife or a a nurse or an adult child, they're more of a problem than the memory loss itself. And we know mm. that um, care stress, as it's often talked about, is a huge deal. So uh, 
somebody who, whose primary role is uh, to care for somebody with dementia themselves will have higher rates of physical health problems, mental health problems. They even have a higher rate of dementia uh, itself, which may be wow. reflective of, of, of stress that they're under. And we know that stress can impair brain function and so on. So it's a really okay. it's a big part of what I do. And I think a really important thing to sort of try and address. Okay, this is great. So this is a nice segue for the, the, my next question was, as you said before, contrary to popular belief, there are things, there are lifestyle changes that you can make that if not prevent dementia, you can definitely delay the onset of dementia. I guess the first one we could address, just as you mentioned it there, stress. You, you think living cons consistently through decades of stress in, in, uh, increases the possibility of you getting dementia? It certainly seems to, to be that way. And I think research does sort of bear that out. If we have uh, chronic stress of a psychological nature, it's uh, harmful to the brain and may predispose to the development of dementia later on. And, uh, you know, I, I guess we're not talking about common everyday stress here, you know, which we all have. That's not necessarily that problematic uh, from a dementia risk perspective. But sort of chronic high levels of stress are, are a problem. And uh, likewise, long-term severe or moderately severe depression is a problem as well for the brain okay and this is sort of interesting link with with inflammation so we know that these mental health problems increase inflammation in the body they increase inflammation in the brain it seems and it's that we believe now that things like alzheimer's disease are actually driven to a large degree by this kind of chronic inflammatory process so we can okay. see when people are depressed or anxious their inflammatory markers and their blood go up and we know that that's not good for them in, in the long term. And then there's other really kind of interesting stuff about structural changes that occur when people are depressed, for instance. So in Alzheimer's disease, one of the core structures that gets damaged early on is something called the hippocampus, which kind of sits deep in the, in the brain. And uh, that kind of shrinks and that accounts for the memory problems that people with Alzheimer's have. But we also see that that shrinks in depression, for instance. So if you take somebody that's very depressed, their hippocampus may also be small as well. And so there's maybe there's some kind of link there. And then if you actually treat their depression, their volume of the hippocampus actually increases again. So there's, there's definitely some kind of link there between uh, mental health, uh, untreated chronic mental health problems and dementia risk. So it's very important to sort of try to address that when you can. Great. Um, and so, if if i understand correctly then we're saying that inflammation in the body in the brain could increase the possibility of you getting dementia but also of, of other areas are there uh, proven means in which you can uh, decrease inflammation in the body and in the brain that you've come across yeah so certainly yeah. treating those mental health problems would, would help hopefully dampen inflammation um, we know that exercise, although it maybe acutely increases inflammation sort of while you're doing it or, or thereabouts, in the long term dampens inflammation down. Uh, okay. Then there's sleep, and, and sleep you know, is a fascinating thing to me. Uh, we know that if you don't sleep well, that tends to be associated with high levels of inflammation. So getting a good night's sleep uh, is, is really important. Actually, on, on the topic of sleep, there's this a really interesting mechanism that takes place when we're in the deeper stages of sleep where there's this kind of what we call a brainwashing effect, where um, through a system called the glymphatic system, fluid is washed through the brain. And as it washes through the brain matter, it takes away a lot of those inflammatory molecules. 
And so it does effectively wash the brain of these things that otherwise would be harmful. So we do need to kind of sleep and ideally sleep deeply um, to get that sort of anti-inflammatory kind of effect. So sleep's critical, exercise is really important. The other big one is uh, diet. Um, so depending on what you eat can hugely uh, influence your kind of levels of inflammation in, in your body and things like that. And we, we can certainly talk about that if you like. Can I go back to the sleep? The, the, that, that, uh, that process you talked about was amazing. So the idea that if we reach consistent levels of deep sleep, that there is this process in which the inflammation in our, in our brain can decrease. Yeah, yeah. So it, 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 I, we don't really fully understand that how it works. And the lymphatic system, the sort of thing that underpins it, it's only really been, I guess, discovered and appreciated in the last 10 years or so. But it seems as though uh, as the uh, arteries in the, the brain pulse, that pulsing kind of then pushes the fluid out through uh, the brain matter. And it's that kind of pulsed flow that then clears the brain of the kind of debris that you need to kind of get rid of. And some people even uh, think that one of the reasons that uh, vascular disease problems with blood supply uh, cause dementia and, and they probably increase Alzheimer's disease as well, as well is because you get stiffening of the artery the walls, which means you don't get such a proper pulsing effect. So you don't get that kind of nice flow through the brain. So it's, it's all kind of conjectural at the moment, but it's kind of really interesting process and uh yeah. so yeah deep sleep is, is critical um REM sleep is important as well you know the dreaming sleep um so that yeah. seems to be when we consolidate memories um we know that uh actually the hippocampus that memory center again is really very active when we're in REM sleep we can kind of measure activity and it's probably because it's sort of replaying all these memories that you've had and helps to kind of sort them out and so they're easier to kind of remember later down the track Ah, this is so interesting to me. Uh, the the I I remember maybe five or six years ago, one of my lecturers talking about how Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan they would both brag about how little sleep they needed mm. because they, they I think they were saying something like they would sleep five hours a day, six hours a day as max because they had so much to do and they needed to do this and they needed to do that and that's what you needed to be, be to reach to the top. But they both, um, they both then in later life had dementia, if I'm correct. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so who knows whether that was the main reason for them. But yeah, it's a very interesting um, element of things, isn't it? I remember hearing yeah. about Margaret Thatcher because I was in, uh, in England in the 80s, you know, when Margaret Thatcher and Neil Kinnock were competing to become... Uh, Prime Minister and things, and there was this sort of joke that Neil Kinnock had to sleep five hours and Margaret Thatcher only had to sleep four. So, you know, <laughs> that's why she got in. Margaret Thatcher not, you know, not sleeping at all, but yeah, who knows? Okay. Um, can I ask um, uh, the co-host here, Seb, uh, he's big into languages. I'm also quite interested in languages as well. And I thought I, I saw, I came across some research that learning other languages can also decrease the possibility of um, onset of dementia. Have you come across research in this area? Yeah, yeah, so that we, yeah. we really do think that's the case. And um, maybe there's something very specifically helpful about languages. Uh, music is the other thing, which we can talk about later, because music actually is a, another kind of language in a way. 
anyway. Yeah. Uh, but yes, if you're bilingual or polylingual, you seem to have lower rates of dementia. And part of that might just come down to the fact that you are uh, building what we call cognitive reserve, which is this basic idea that uh, the more you kind of work on uh, creating a robust brain, the more you'll be able to withstand or cope with the damage that occurs later on with vascular disease and Alzheimer's disease and things. So if you have high levels of education, if you have a kind of really cognitively engaging line of work or, you know, you you study a lot or you learn languages, these are all types of, uh, I guess they're all exercising the brain in a way. They're they're what we call complex mental activity. And there, there does seem to be this link between having regular complex mental activity, building cognitive reserve, and then being able to then uh, not manifest the signs of, of dementia uh, as early kind of later in life. So it, it does definitely seem to be protective. Okay. And am I right in saying that this might also relate to the idea of a, a, a routine? I have this idea in my head, please correct me if I'm wrong, that maybe if someone is consistently doing, say, for several decades, a similar a similar routine, i.e. they're driving home the, the same route, they go to the, the same restaurant, they eat the same food, they have the same walk, they, they've been working in the same place, they see the same people, usually the same discussions. Am I right in saying that this might also, because maybe there's like a, a smaller and smaller uh, parts of the brain being activated compared to, you know, if, for instance, you start learning an instrument, then your brain is having to work in a different way, or if you're learning a different language, or if you have to t- think about something in a way that you never thought about it before. Am I right in saying that this could also uh, impact? Um, so I think what what we uh, what we know about complex mental activity is that one of the key things is actually novelty. So it's doing something new, something your brain's not used to. So. Okay. In a way, I think if you're just doing the same thing over and over again, having a very set routine, and I don't, I don't really know whether research bears this out entirely, but my feeling would be that you're, that's going to be less helpful than doing more broad, uh, novel things throughout your life. You know, changing okay. what you do, uh, engaging different parts of the brain, um, because the brain's actually quite a, a lazy organ, really. Know, like it, it, well, lazy or energy efficient, so it kind of likes to follow the same neural okay. tracks. You know, the same nerves fire off all the time, and so if you're just doing the same thing all the time, it's just kind of lazily going around using the same circuitry. Uh, but if you're doing something kind of different or novel, it kind of then has to expend more energy, and that is actually probably helpful for it, kind of in the longer term. Uh, so doing something kind of different. Um, routine becomes really important, I think, as people enter the more moderate to severe stages of dementia. You know, routine is very important, I think. But before dementia, I would actually be advising you to be doing more, you know, more diverse things rather than the same thing all the time. Okay. Can I ju- can I ask just on a side note? Um, as your research has developed. Have you made like some changes in your own life thinking, oh, actually, maybe I'm potentially at risk here or maybe I would like to delay the possibility of myself getting dementia in 20, 30 years. So maybe I'll do this in my life or do that. Yeah, I'll try to drink less. That's one thing. Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's quite important. Um, okay. And yeah, so that, 
and we could talk about alcohol because that's quite quite interesting anyway because it's not not all bad with alcohol but um yeah but yeah i'm certainly aware of that um i do try to on the whole have a reasonably healthy diet um that's how we talk about a mediterranean diet or something similar to that called a mind diet they're probably got the most um robust evidence for helping with, with the brain um, i exercise regularly uh, the nature of my job means that i guess i'm kind of engaging my brain all the time um, i try to manage stress so you know that's that's a big thing you know it's inherently kind of a stressful line of work i'm i'm in really in psychiatry what a risk a lot of people that are very sick and things so i'm mm. quite aware of that um, i um try to meditate um, regularly because I think that's actually really good for your brain as well so um, I try to go easy on sugar which is hard but sugar is horribly toxic for the brain so you know yeah. if you can minimize that that's helpful as well so yeah I kind of put I try to put a lot of these things into into place with varying results I would say okay I appreciate the honesty <laughs> it's <laughs> difficult <laughs> um, if that's okay, then can we talk a little bit on alcohol and sugar? Yeah, yeah. So the story with alcohol, really, I mean, it's kind of a good news, bad news story, really. So, I mean, it, it's good news in the sense that if you know if you, if you like a drink, then we don't, and you're otherwise quite healthy, uh, then from a brain health perspective, we, you don't need to kind of go teetotal. Uh, we don't really think that you, you need to do that to, to, you know, prevent dementia and so on. Um, the bad news, I suppose, is that we don't really have a proper understanding of exactly how much is an okay amount to drink from a brain health perspective. Um, okay. We, every country varies, actually, and, and so here in Australia, with alcohol, um, we recommend the general guidelines for, for alcohol use, so there's no real guidelines for cognitive health in particular, but just general health guidelines, which are not more than... 10 standard units a week and not more than four standard units in one sitting. Now, I think in Ireland, you're a bit more generous, maybe. So you can, uh, and then the UK generally. Uh, so I think you might be allowed to have 14 units or something like that. But um, so that's kind of, when I talk to people about alcohol, that's that's my kind of general rule of thumb. You know, they're otherwise reasonably healthy and they, they like a drink. They don't have to stop, but they just kind of have to, be aware of it, moderate it, and have a few days off, and, and just just not overdo it. Okay, be because you've seen in people who are consistently drinking more, say fifteen, twenty units a week over a long period of time, that, that increases the possibility. Absolutely, okay. yeah. I mean, I've seen, I guess, the the aftermath of what is very clear about alcohol is that, is that if you drink enough of it over a long period of time, it is almost inevitable that you will get some form of cognitive problem like a dementia. So I was mentioning at the outset about alcohol-related dementia, and uh, I've seen lots of people with, with that particular condition. I've seen other people that are kind of, you know, midlife, certainly don't have dementia, but they have subtle problems with the front part of their brain, for instance. They don't maybe not making very good decisions about things. They can't organise themselves very well. Uh, they plan uh, very effectively so what we call executive problems and, and alcohol seems to preferentially affect that part of the brain and so it can cause those difficulties as, as well so this is kind of spectrum effect i suppose where it's certainly at the extreme end you can really have very severe problems with dementia as a consequence of alcohol use um okay. yeah which is you know, tragic 
really, but it, it, it happens yeah. quite a lot. Okay. And you mentioned also sugar is, is it quite toxic long-term for the brain. Is that a similar process? Yeah, so with, with sugar, um, so it is a very toxic substance. Um, again, I don't think we really have a very good um, understanding of exactly how much sugar we should have, probably a bit more so than alcohol, but um, there are some guidelines. Um, everybody's different. Everybody has different vulnerabilities. I think, you know, some people maybe more likely to get diabetes, which is sort of the end product of, of um, you know, excessive sugar consumption, of type 2 diabetes, that sort of thing. Other people might be relatively well protected from it. So it seems to be a very individual thing. But sugar uh, is a, a problem in terms of its effect, again, on inflammation, and it can have an impact upon uh, vascular disease. It can affect your weight. And, you know, being overweight actually is in itself a risk factor, particularly in midlife. Um, obesity okay. is a risk factor for dementia as well. So okay. sugar kind of wreaks havoc, um, I think, if you have it in excess um, over a long period of time. So you, and, and one, of the, one of the things I worry about a little bit is we've known for a long time that people that have diabetes have higher levels of dementia, but it seems okay. to me that we've now got some studies that show that even if your blood sugar is normal, you know, you don't have diabetes, if it's at the higher end of the range, you may still be more vulnerable to getting dementia and cognitive problems later down the track. So, okay. so we just have to be very careful. And I think you can't be entirely comforted by having a normal blood sugar. If, it, if it's kind of high, you still really need to, but normal, you still really need to kind of work on, on addressing that side of things. And um, this is sort of, this is some people call Alzheimer's disease type three diabetes, you know, which is kind of a funny term for it, but it, it, it sort of um, highlights, I guess, the link between sugar and brain health and we know that in people that have dementia they don't use sugar as well the brain doesn't use sugar as well to kind of power the, the cells they become what we call insulin resistant so insulin is a hormone that drives sugar into the cells and we know that there is increased uh, rates of insulin resistance in diabetes as well um, in the brain so it, it sort of there seems to be lots of ways in which it causes problems and um, you know I, I think we're going to see more and more research that suggests we just need to be very careful and I was actually reading something the other day that was talking about the increase in sugar consumption I think it was in America and they were talking about how 200 years ago the average American had two pounds of sugar a year and uh, these days it's about maybe two to three pounds a week so that's the consumption of sugar increase that we're seeing. So if that's, you know, that's highly abnormal. We have, we have sugar everywhere. So we just have to be very careful about it. Okay. You know, I even, um, we had an interview with uh, Dr. Pro uh, Professor um, Julia Rookledge, who's based in, in New Zealand, and she talks about diet. And she references this study that in the UK and Ireland, in the average household, 50% of the food is ultra-processed, meaning yeah. like almost none of the ingredients are kind of, you know, yes, yeah. you know, real kind of, you know, a yeah. lot of sugar, a lot of this, a lot of that. Compared yeah. to uh, Italy and Greece, which is 15%, 17%, which oh, I think right. is, okay. yeah, 
very interesting because you mentioned the Mediterranean diet. Yeah, yeah, that, that that's right. So um, that doesn't surprise me. And I guess, you know, the, the processed the food, so the, there are issues with sugar. There's also potential issues with saturated fat and then the salt mm. as well. And there's some controversy around saturated fat. You know, people that are keto diet kind of advocates don't have a problem with saturated fat. But I think most people in mainstream medicine actually see it as a problem for the heart and vascular system and therefore the brain. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the processed Processing of foods, I think, is a real problem. Frying mm. foods, you know, there's some worry about the different, um, I guess, the effects of the oils that you're frying on the uh, membranes and the nerve cells and how toxic that can be as well. So, yeah, it, it is a big problem. Okay. I I spoke with my dad last night before in, in preparation for this, and my dad said, oh, will you, will you just ask him about uh, the impact of... of head, uh, how do I say, like, head um, interactions, um, because my dad obviously knows uh, Bobby Charlton, who is is struggling a lot with dementia, yeah. and he mentioned several other footballers of that era when the football was, was different, it wasn't as light, it was quite heavy and more likely for water to kind of get into the ball, yeah. and I wondered, have you seen, I mean, it may seem obvious, but I mean, have you seen a higher incidence of uh, dementia would say like boxers, rugby players, footballers, people who do maybe like MMA, this kind of area where the the head is receiving quite a lot of hits, like quite a lot of trauma. Yeah. Um, yes, personally, I suppose I haven't seen too many cases directly related to head injuries, but we do know that, that that's in Australia, but we do know that that is definitely, does seem to be a link there. When I worked in Wales back in 2004, 2005, I was working in a memory clinic and we had a large number of, of men who had played soccer, sorry, football, soccer over <laughs> here, uh, you know, for years. And, and they, a lot of them did have dementia. And I remember this, you know, this was, as say, 17 years ago before we kind of knew a lot about it. I remember thinking this is a kind of an interesting link. Uh, but now the research, I think, is really quite clear. So... Boxing, we've kind of known about and seems seems obvious to a certain extent. So this kind of condition called dementia pugilistica, we've known about for a long time. Uh, but the head injuries that you get from football or uh, NRL or uh, Aussie rules, you know, that kind of stuff, they, they all seem to be quite relevant as, as well. And it's interesting what you point out about the, um, the connection between wet balls and heavier balls and things because I was reading some research recently that said that the era in which you played soccer was or football wasn't really um, a particularly good predictor of whether you were going to get dementia uh, but okay. what was relevant was your position on the pitch so ah. if you're if the professional goalies you know who don't hit the ball really have no increased risk of dementia the defenders who do most of the heading and you know high impact heading have the highest rates. So there seems to be this, this definite link between head injuries and dementia, and it kind of varies depending on, you know, how, how many times you have hit the ball. And I've, I've got two boys that play football here, and I've just recently told my 16-year-old that he should probably try and avoid hitting the ball, and he thinks I'm being a bit obsessive. But uh, <laughs> I, I guess this is probably... The studies are really done in most people that have been playing for years and years and years you know, on a professional level. 
And so how it translates to just, you know, kids growing up and playing a little bit, we don't really know. Okay. Um, but there are moves afoot, I believe, to, to sort of try and maybe even reduce heading or, or minimise it. And, and I think that's a, that's a good thing. Okay. Uh, so what we know is that if you head the ball um, enough times, then you can cause damage to this thing called chronic traumatic encephalopathy, where basically it's just a problem with the brain that arises and you get this protein in your brain called tau and amyloid and tau are the two proteins that we see in alzheimer's disease so that can cause all kinds of problems for the brains you can kind of imagine um, and so yeah so head injuries is something we just need to be very mindful of okay thanks Chris. i i wanted to ask i know you mentioned it before but i think this is important say if there are people listening who have a loved one who has dementia um and maybe they feel a bit down or a bit kind of somewhat hopeless. Um, I'd love for you to reiterate that even when someone has been diagnosed with dementia, there are still lifestyle lifestyle changes that can be made that can improve the condition. Because I even read recently that there is a, uh, they, they estimate roughly 50% of people with dementia um, suffered a, a, a deterioration during the lockdown. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if you could speak a bit more about this. Yeah, so I think that on that um, topic of the lockdown in, in particular, the social connection is, is so important and we know it's important for, for mental health and uh, we know that the rates of mental health problems have increased with, with lockdown, so there's that kind of issue by itself. Um, but the concept of loneliness, you know, which comes about when you don't feel connected to people is this, again, an inflammatory kind of condition that then can potentially drive damage to the brain in, in the longer run. So we can, again, measure the inflammatory markers in, in the bloodstream and we've seen that they're elevated in people who feel lonely. And there's a, there's a bit of a difference, and I think it's important to point out, there's a difference between pe people being socially isolated and lonely so social isolation is a, is a social construct in how many people are around you, I guess. Um, loneliness um, can occur regardless of how many people you have around you. And, and sadly, you know, a, a lot of the really lonely people I see are people in nursing homes who are surrounded by all these other people, but they don't have a meaningful connection to them. And so they can still feel lonely. And it seems to be loneliness that is kind of the key issue when it comes to kind of poor brain health and, and dementia risk and so on. So staying connected is, is hugely important on, on lots of levels and is definitely coming back to your sort of question about well, what can we change when you have dementia and what can help feeling connected to people. This is definitely one of those things we should all be striving for. Uh, it's probably fair to say that the, a lot of the lifestyle interventions that we've talked about are better off being put in place years, potentially decades before dementia does traditionally develop. However, you know, I, I think it's never too late to, to put them into place. And we do have some research that suggests that the trajectory of dementia might be changeable by uh, adopting these favorable lifestyle changes. Um, okay. It's hard to kind of know which ones in terms of the hierarchy are the, the best to do, but I would say that exercise is, is definitely up there. Uh, okay. And we've shown that people that have this kind of condition called 
mild cognitive impairment or MCI, which is often a precursor to dementia, um, their rates of um, conversion to dementia and the, the brain changes that occur with it are influenced favorably by exercising regularly. Okay. Uh, so we can change, I think, the uh, the trajectory of dementia to a degree by by engaging in regular exercise. And we were talking before about the hippocampus um, and that memory sort of center in, in Alzheimer's again. And we know that exercise can increase the volume of that. We know that exercise induces this molecule that we call brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is like miracle growth for the brain. So it seems to have this very favorable effect on uh, the molecules that we need to keep our brain healthy. So I definitely do think there are things that can be done um, also choosing wisely in terms of your diet. So even if you have Alzheimer's disease, because this is sort of connection between vascular disease and Alzheimer's disease, they both increase the risk of each other. If you, uh, often the trajectory of Alzheimer's is influenced by how bad your vascular disease is. So if you have vascular problems, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, high blood sugar, etc., cetera, uh, if you can get on top of those, even though you might have sort of Alzheimer's dementia, you're going to have a, a more favorable trajectory. You know, you're not going to decline quite as much in general. So yeah, all those things, you know, diet, social connection, uh, exercise and so on, I, I would still certainly be promoting them even if you do have uh, dementia. I think they can be very helpful and they can be helpful for other reasons as well. Even if we're not, if our goal is not preserving cognition, uh, that could be helpful from keep our mental health perspective, uh, sleep, etc. So, as a, you know, I really would just carry on trying to do those things, whatever age you can, uh, if you're able. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. And um, you mentioned loneliness. What came to mind is I could imagine someone who feels relatively connected to the people around them, their family, their loved ones, who is then diagnosed with dementia and is then uh, often or sometimes kind of struggling with that, with, with maybe like like um, experiencing a, a change in mood that would not really be like them or like forgetting, say, like their granddaughter's name or something. I'd imagine that in itself could make you feel a little lonely because you are kind of having an experience that's quite unique, at least in, in circles. And I was wondering... Would there be something that you were, would recommend for someone who is living with or very close to someone who has just been diagnosed with dementia in, in maybe kind of prioritizing that idea of not wanting to make them feel Yeah, lonely? so you're definitely right. And, and it's, it's been my experience a lot over the, the last decade or so that um, people, uh, dementia can be quite isolating. You're right, you know, people feel, um, they don't want to admit it. You know, they don't want other people to know. And so they withdraw socially and, or they lack social confidence or, or whatever um, because they can't remember things. And so, it, so it, it does have that effect. And unfortunately, I think it is quite a stigmatized condition. You know, I mean, I, in the same way that depression, you know, decade, 20 years ago was really a stigmatized condition. It, it still is to a degree, but it's getting better. I think dementia is kind of now in that, that same bracket because uh, you know, that's just the sort of cultural response to it. Uh, so in terms of what you do, it's really just a matter of trying to um, be as honest and open as you can about the fact that you have the condition or your loved one has the condition, 
there are plenty of other people out there that, that do, you know, 50 million people in the world, in fact, have dementia. So you're not, you're actually not alone in any way. Um, there are lots of um, support groups. There's lots of information online in Ireland. I think you have like an Alzheimer's Society, I think, uh, website. We certainly have lots in Australia. So reaching out to professional supports, um, going to see somebody, you know, whether you're a carer or you're somebody in the early stages of dementia, uh, either talking with family and friends, or if you don't feel you can do that, then talking with a, a counsellor or, or, you know, your GP or something like that, just to kind of talk through how you're feeling, all of that stuff's, um, I think it's really, really critical. And, and sometimes the, the diagnosis can actually be associated with clinical depression or, or clinical anxiety. And it's really important that you go and seek help and, and do what you, you can to sort of fix those things. So I, I do think, I mean, some of it, I think it is this cultural issue. Um, if we kind of just had a different perspective on dementia, people probably wouldn't feel so isolated, but that may take a bit of time. And, and in the meantime, there are lots of things you can mm -hmm. do individually to sort of try and try and tackle it. Great. Thank you. You mentioned music before. Uh, I'd love for you to speak a little bit on the the relationship between music and, and mental mm, health. And yeah, things. so I think this is, this is fascinating. So uh, there's a few kind of connections here. So first of all, I think, again, we know that um, possibly uh, playing a musical instrument and, and being very good at it may be protective for the brain and kind of reduce the risk of dementia and, and so on. And as I said before, it kind of can be seen as a sort of a language in a sense. So there's, there's that side of things. There's also some suggestion that music can kind of evoke memories that um, are not necessarily that accessible otherwise. And although I think we don't really fully know, there do seem to be different parts of the brain responsible for kind of musical memory uh, that, uh, that could be activated still, even though your, your other parts of the brain might be damaged by dementia. So there's, there's that part of things So kind of, you can almost use it sometimes as a reminiscence or a, a sort of therapy to kind of improve people's mood and we know it can do that. So music therapy is one of the things that we sometimes use to help people who are agitated or restless or feeling down and things. Um, and then I think the other thing to point out is, is the fact that people that do play instruments, I mean, they're, they're really amazingly able to, to still play those instruments despite the fact that they have, they have no memory function. So they may not remember what they've had for breakfast and what they've done literally an hour ago, but they will be able to play an instrument um, really well. And, and I had this experience a few years ago of a, a chap who had been a concert pianist in his younger days, and he was sort of now in his mid-70s. And at the aged care facility where he was a resident, they had a, a piano. And I was, you know, I would speak to him and I'd clinically assess him and he could barely talk, you know, his language function was really poor, couldn't remember a thing. And then he would sort of wander over to the piano and sit down and, and was almost playing this incredibly complex pieces uh, perfectly. So it was remarkable, you know, that it's just kind of a different part of the brain that I think is sort of responsible for that. Wow. So almost like the part of the brain that you use for music is almost the most resilient or like the last yeah, yeah, part I think to go. So, so, so when you're playing a musical instrument, if you've done it for years and years, it becomes what we call procedural memories. It's the same kind of memory that allows us to ride a bike, drive a car, you know, that kind of stuff that we kind of do unconsciously. And, and procedural memory seems to be more okay. robust, you know, like it doesn't get affected 
quite as obviously as other sort of memories in, in the brain and memory for facts and days and so on. So that, that's kind of, um, that's definitely sort of probably part of it. And that sort of procedural memories are influenced by the, the deeper part of the brain, if you like. And most things like Alzheimer's disease affect the kind of outer cortex, first of all. So that's why the damage is not to those other centers. And the other thing I think that's really interesting is that music, of course, has a an emotional quality to it. So we all have songs that we listen to that evoke some sort of emotional response in us. And one thing we do know about memory is if it has that kind of emotional element to it, it, it it's far more uh, memorable for us. So I wonder whether that's another reason that these memories are um. kind of more, more robust. That's, that's very, very interesting. Thanks for sharing that. I appreciate that now. Um, before we leave, I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about your book. Um, I also wondered, is there something that I could cover in this conversation that you think is super important for someone who wants to learn more about dementia? Um, so I suppose the only other thing that I'd, I'd, I'd mention really is, is just, a, and we did talk about this before, but just about the, the carer, the carer stress side of things and how how important yeah. it is to kind of address that. I mean, I, that's something with, with my book that I've focused in on a bit is, is that particular side of things because they're often referred to as the invisible second patient, you know, because, of course, you're focused as a, as a doctor or a clinician mm. on the person with dementia, and but I think you can then miss the impact they can have on, on somebody else. And so ultimately, you know, if you're talking about a husband and wife, they want to generally stay together as long as they possibly can. But if that care stress becomes too much, that's the sort of thing that's going to co cause the relationship to break down and then, and then all those feelings of grief and loss and mm. so on. So doing whatever you can to sort of support carers, I think, is, is kind of the other thing that I'd, I really, I guess, like to mention. Um, and the only other thing, I suppose, to, to kind of comment on, because I get a lot of people that, they're in their 50s or 60s or early 70s and they're worried about their memory but actually they've just got a, an aging brain and i think being able to kind of differentiate between what happens to the brain in normal aging versus dementia is, is quite a helpful thing to know and, and I, again i do talk about that in, in the okay. book but um you know essentially as we all get older we probably anticipate that our memory function will, will go down a little bit uh, we, we do, our hippocampus does shrink with age uh, to a degree, so we become a little bit more forgetful um, and our planning and executive skills are not quite so good and our speed of thought and problem solving seems to be particularly affected. So we have you know, tip of the tongue kind of moments and word finding difficulties and we just can't pull the facts to, to mind quite as easily. So all of that kind of, if, if you have those things okay. you're kind of generally getting by day to day, then I, I'm not overly worried about that and um, it's just if your the memory problems okay. become a, a you know an everyday thing that's kind of happening over and over again is really kind of impacting on your function or if you notice problems with language specifically because your language ability you know speech and writing shouldn't really change a great deal so that's kind of a bit of a red red flag to okay. me um, as well if those kind of things happen okay. that's probably when you need to see somebody but you shouldn't be overly worried if the brain's not quite operating at the same level it was when you were you know 25 as long as you're kind of generally getting by day to day yeah okay 
that um that that's <laughs> spurred a question in my head here. Um, you know, for instance, if you do have a, uh, someone close in your life who is late, later, like maybe 60s, 70s, and they are showing signs of, like you said, this maybe small memory loss or maybe struggling to come with words or it's taking its time. In your experience, um, I know in Ireland, for instance, it would be pretty common for someone to say, like, sure, we, sure, how are you forgetting that? Or you asked me that yesterday or you've asked me that three times this mm-hmm. week or something like that. In your experience, is is that approach actually counterintuitive? Does that actually increase a kind of worry in the person that maybe everything they say they're repeating? And then does that make them kind of go further inwards? Or is it impossible to say? Or I, I or think your that um, you have to tread carefully. And as a general rule, I try to avoid... I try to encourage people that are looking after somebody with with memory problems to to have that confrontational, slightly challenging approach because I I don't think it's actually that helpful. Um, There is another kind of side to the argument that would say, well, if you don't remind somebody of something, then they're just going to be too lazy to kind of remember it and so on. And and there's there's, there's some logic in the kind of, you know, just kind of challenge your brain and trying to... Uh, make an effort to remember. I mean, I think that's probably good for the brain, but if it starts getting really stressful, then that's really quite counterproductive. And certainly if you do have somebody with a, I guess, a fully fledged Alzheimer's type dementia, then, you know, they, they, it's not as though they can't remember anything, but their capacity to remember things eventually will become very diminished. And so however much you kind of remind them that you told them something, it, it hasn't gone in. So um, you just cause stress, okay. and it's just kind of not—it's not yeah, not worth it. I think it is counterproductive, really. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, and just to speak a bit more about your book, can you remind the, the listeners what's it called, yeah. where it can be found, and and the style it's written in? If if someone's not used to reading books about a certain medical condition, is it quite well, accessible? Yeah, I mean, it was certainly designed for um, the lay okay. public rather than for, for medics. Or I mean, I think um, health professionals hopefully would get a lot out of it as well because it's got a a lot of I guess information about. Um, certain conditions and, and what we think sort of going on and it covers a lot of the stuff that we've talked about but it's written in such a way where it's kind of broken up into chapters and then you can get a look at the the key points in the chapter at a very superficial level so you don't have to kind of read everything all the time and it, and it covers the things okay. that we've talked about really i'll show it to you for those people that are um, actually watching this rather than listening to it but it's, yeah. so it's called mind your brain the Essential Australian Guide to Dementia. Now, I should point out that although it does say Australian, uh, it really is applicable, you know, 95% of it is applicable wherever you live. The Australian thing was just because we don't have an Australian okay. guide. Uh, and so it suggested that that was, was uh, put in the title. And it has a few kind of specific details okay. about managing the aged care sector in this country and, and supports it that are Australia specific. But the rest of it is kind of, you know, applicable wherever you are, I think. But it goes through different points. So it talks about Great. how the brain functions normally. It talks about what happens as your brain gets older. It, there's a whole chapter on preventing dementia and uh, cognitive decline. Uh, and then it sort of goes through the different types of dementia and then the assessment process, what to expect if you go and see your doctor, what sort of tests they're likely to do. Um, 
And then the second half of the book really talks about once you do have dementia, what, what do you expect? You know, what can happen? And, and it covers the memory problems and what you can do about it. It covers the behavioral and psychological changes and what can be done about them. And then it talks about some ethical kind of issues and legal issues and, and so on as well. So it's kind of designed to give an overview um, of all the, I guess, as many of the different aspects of dementia that I kind of thought were important in my 10 years of dealing with people, the kind of questions that I'm asked. And hopefully it sort of answers answers a lot of those things. So, so yeah, so it's available on um, Amazon. So you can, you know, anybody that's interested can just uh, buy it and look at it on their Kindle and, uh, or, you know, paperback or whatever, but um, yeah, obviously keen to spread the word. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, as are we at the Earthly Delights podcast. No, thank you. I'm looking forward to reading it and I, I think the work is very, very important. I'm so glad that you that you wrote this book and that you are helping people with this process. Like you said, there are so many people who are affected by dementia, not even only the person with the condition, but the family and, and as you said, the stress on the carer and the extended family. And yeah, I'm looking looking forward to reading more and I'm sure listeners have taken a lot from just these these kind of points that we covered in this conversation. So thank you so much for your work. Thanks for doing this podcast. That's a pleasure. It's been really, really fun. It. Thanks and nice to meet you. Okay. Thanks a million. Um, if, if it's okay with you, could you just wait? Usually it takes. Hi guys. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review if you haven't already. Every review helps us climb the podcast charts so that even more of you can listen to our amazing guests. We really appreciate the support. Remember to tune in next week. But until then, keep safe and have a good one.